Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Dan Mihalopoulos in for Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. It's Friday, and that means it's time for our Friday News Roundup, where we break down the biggest local news of the week. We'll spend a good chunk of time breaking down Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot's first State of the City address, which she delivered last night. Lightfoot talked about the city's financial future. We have some hard choices to make. There's no doubt about that, and I will not sugarcoat that reality. But she also talked about what she sees as some of her biggest wins during her first 100 days. Ending the practice known as aldermanic prerogative. Next, we passed one of the most comprehensive ethics reform packages, combing the city budget and contracts for efficiencies and savings. Hired and empowered the city's first chief risk officer. We will be replacing high-cost debt. We implemented a hiring freeze across city government. I'm joined by Daily Line Managing Editor and City Hall Reporter Heather Sharon. Also with me is WTTW host and political correspondent Paris Schutz. And I want to kick things off with Mayor Lightfoot's big reveal. The budget gap for 2020 is $838 million. Okay, Paris, lay it on us. How did it get so bad? Well, if you listen to the mayor, a third of that comes from higher pension costs. Another third comes from increased labor costs. There's $100 million for service on uh, the debt, $90 million from anticipated lawsuits. But, you know, when Mayor Emanuel sort of reworked the whole pension funding formula, he made it so that there was going to be a spike in payments this year, next year, and the year after. I don't know, coincidentally or not, <laughs> after he was going to be out of office. But, I mean, this was coming down the pike. And the chickens are coming home to roost, and a lot of budgets and deficits can kind of be fudging the numbers. I mean, the, uh, Becky Vivi just reported here, Mayor Emanuel's budget deficit last year, he said, was the smallest in recent memory, $98 million. And all of a sudden, it's the largest in recent memory. Who knew a year later? So some financial smoke and mirrors here. Heather, you listened for years as Mayor Emanuel blamed Mayor Daley. Now Mayor Lightfoot started this speech by saying she inherited a financial mess in turn from Emmanuel. Uh, explain that for us. Well, I was surprised that she was as blunt as she was. She said, and I quote, we were not left with any credible plan on how to fix this massive problem. That's a, a shot right across the bow to Rahm Emanuel, who left office after a, a victory tour proclaiming he had left Chicago in much better financial state than he had found it. Let's not forget that when he took office, he had a budget deficit of 637 million. And he said that that required a wholesale reimagining of how the city operated. So you can only imagine that a deficit 30% greater, more than 30% greater, is a very significant uh, hill for Mayor Lightfoot to climb. It's a little bit different because that gap did not include pension debt the way that this gap does. And and I agree with you, Heather. That was definitely a shot across about a Mayor Emanuel. But the interesting thing is there are some Mayor Emanuel retreats in Mayor Lightfoot's administration. If you look at Mayor Lightfoot's top uh, legislative person, it's Mayor Emanuel's former budget person. Absolutely. So this is kind of out of every new public official's playbook. The mayor, Governor Rauner said this is the worst 
financial situation I've ever seen when he took over for Quinn. And as you said, uh, Emmanuel did that after Daly, and now Lightfoot's doing it after Emmanuel. And so the goal is you wallop people in the first year, and then by the time you have to run for re-election, you make it seem like, well, look where we were and look where we came. I was surprised that the pension bill, essentially, that's due next year is $280 million. That's what we expected for several years. So that problem hasn't gotten worse, essentially. So I thought, if we're looking for a silver lining, perhaps that's it. You know, a lot of those pension costs went up because the poor performance, poor uh, returns, um, because of the at the end of 2017, the the stock market didn't do so well. So that boosted the cost. And, And that Begs the question, Heather, what happens if there is a downturn economically? If there's a recession, we're, we're walking on eggshells right now. Absolutely. And the economy's okay. Absolutely. So as expected, uh, the mayor didn't present any specific plans on how to close the budget gap. That's supposedly going to, to happen when she literally has to propose a budget that the, the city council can chew on and vote on in October. And she said she is counting on casino and marijuana revenue, and she also called on Springfield to, quote, step up to the plate. Will that be enough? So it's a really interesting dynamic. Democrats, of course, have super majorities in the Illinois House and Illinois Senate. Of course, Governor J.B. Pritzker is a Democrat firmly ensconced in the governor's mansion now, resting his broken leg, we learned yesterday. Uh, But the problem is, is that whether Springfield wants to sort of pass laws that are designed to only help Chicago will be a very difficult lift, especially as uh, representatives and senators prepare to run for re-election in 2020. And all of the focus will be focused on the push for the graduated income tax, which is really the linchpin of Pritzker's uh, agenda for his you know, four-year term. Right. I mean, Springfield uh, Democrats, could they do it? Absolutely. Will they do it? doesn't seem likely because they don't want to do it. And I spoke to Greg Harris, who's the House Majority Leader. He's number two behind Mike Madigan down there. He says there really isn't an appetite to do all these things, to reopen the casino bill. Because if you do, look at what Arlington Park did. I mean, if you reopen the casino bill and just change it for Chicago, everything falls apart. Or, um, you know, a real estate transfer tax, sales tax. Even Governor Pritzker, who has a good relationship with the mayor, sent a statement saying she's going to have to build coalitions across the state if she wants all of this done. So he's not ready to push the button and get all these wishes accomplished for the mayor. Yeah, well, the mayor did talk about that. Some nice rhetoric about the state expanding and extending beyond uh, I-80, which, of course, it does. But this is coming at a time when there's like a secessionist movement. There's separatists <laughs> downstate, the, the whole Confederate Railroad. Uh, flap down at the at right. state fair, and so it, it, and it's always been a tough uh, road to hoe for the mayors of Chicago going down to Springfield. I think, but the mayor says if she doesn't get help from Springfield, all options are on the table. She doesn't want to raise property taxes. W- what are the options here, Heather? Well, essentially, property tax revenue is the easiest lever for the mayor and the city council to pull to fill that budget gap. What I thought was interesting in her speech last night was that she basically said she would be guided by two principles. One, mm-hmm. she would not balance the budget on the backs of poorest Chicagoans. And two, she would not impose new taxes or fees that would drive out businesses from Chicago. So that leaves her a very, very narrow path 
to walk. So we didn't hear anything about reinstituting the employee head tax that Rahm Emanuel did away with. And that brought immediate condemnation from aldermen like Carlos Ramirez Rosa. Who has from been the pu- left. Yeah. From the left, yes, absolutely, who's been pushing to bring that back. Uh, the one thing that she did not mention and that we still don't know is how much of a surplus the city will be able to declare mm-hmm. from its tax increment financing districts. So there was a huge influx of property tax revenue to those districts that we learned uh, last month, the city will get some relief from that pot of money. How much? Who knows? Will it make it a little bit easier? Maybe. Is it $900 million? No, it's no. not. Yeah, historically, you've been able to get about $100 million, maybe $200 million, um, because, you know, the, the the tips did very well last year, so maybe you get that. You know, the other thing she mentioned very vaguely was reducing congestion in the loop and something right. like some kind of congestion tax. It takes uh, on people that come into downtown. Come on, yeah, like I commuter tax. Right in London. The suburbanites. Yeah, yeah and, and I mean, that's something that would, I, I believe, would take approval from Springfield, too. Yes. Um, she also said, uh, we're going to have a robust cannabis industry. Is she going to get $800 million from cannabis? No. But saying robust, you know, maybe she envisions an Amsterdam here of the Midwest uh, because of the tax revenue um, that it could produce and, and the hole that the city finds itself. But she used the word robust cannabis industry. So she's counting on that. And the city still has to sort of craft its framework of laws around cannabis. The state passed the bill, but now the city has to set up, well, where can they go and, uh, you know, zoning issues and stuff like that. So the mayor also touted her work before she even got into anything, much less the big number of the budget deficit. She was talking about her work on ethics reform at City Hall. Uh, But again, she stopped short of calling out certain aldermen by name. Uh, Here's an example of We have taken important steps to professionalize the $100 million a year workers' compensation program. That program had been under the control of a single alderman who is now under federal indictment. So that's obviously uh, Ed Burke that she's talking about there. (laughs) No surprise. Uh, How are her colleagues uh, reacting to that? She called them out in her inaugural speech, too, in, in a somewhat similar way. I mean, she has this coalition of people on the left and maybe more business-minded and African-American and Hispanic. But beneath the surface, I don't know how strong that coalition is. And they don't like the the harsh rhetoric toward aldermen. They believe that there should be more respect. They believe that uh, she should be reaching out to aldermen and working with them more. They're, they're a little skittish. I didn't hear any response to that specific statement last night from Alderman Edberg. But this budget process is going to show her and everybody else, you know, who stands with her and who stands against her and whether this 75 percent that she won, this mandate that she has, is going to stick. Um, Because, again, it's a very tenuous coalition that she has. That's right. This is really the central question, I think, facing Lightfoot and the the budget question. Can she get a majority of the city council, so 26 aldermen, to vote for a budget that will make – some people angry, even right. as she calls them out for essentially right. being corrupt and not working in the best interests of Chicago's people. That is the fundamental question. I don't know the answer to that. And there, there's one alderman that is not a fan of hers that I spoke with on the phone who said, he said, you're going to rip me. You're going to take my aldermanic prerogative away. And then you're going to ask me to raise taxes on my people. No way. Not a good omen uh, (laughs) if that sentiment is clear to a lot of people. So the budget address is coming up in October. Heather, what should we expect there? 
Well, you know, I think that there are going to be a series of four town hall meetings starting next week after Labor Day, and it will be interesting to see what sort of reaction Mayor Lightfoot gets. This is another play taken directly from the Rahm Emanuel Mm -hmm. playbook. Rahm Emanuel did this before he pushed through a historic property tax increase in 2015, and he was excoriated by the people who attended Mm -hmm. those meetings. So I will be watching to see how she's received by the people and whether or not anything that comes up at any of those meetings actually makes its way into the October budget proposal. Well, she's not giving us many clear uh, ideas yet of what she's going to propose, but we are getting, I think, uh, an invitation for the public to uh, contribute their ideas. And um, that certainly is not something that we've seen too often uh, in any real fashion. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on The Morning Shift. I'm Dan Mihalopoulos in for Jen White. And with me in studio to break down the big stories of the week, we have Paris Schutz of WTTW and Heather Sharon of The Daily Line. Some other stories we're watching this morning. Five new vaping-related illnesses have been confirmed in Illinois, bringing the total to 27 cases. The patients did not have prior lung disease and had used an e-cigarette in the last 90 days. Last week, Illinois had the first vaping-related death in the nation. Meanwhile, Illinois has awarded the first batch of licenses for recreational marijuana shops, which can open on January 1st. The licenses are going to existing medical marijuana dispensaries in Mundelein, Joliet, Naperville, Canton in West Central Illinois, and Effingham down in Southern Illinois. So, Paris and Heather, uh, let's switch over to the Chicago Teachers Union, another big money question, multi-billion dollar question. The Teachers Union this week rejected an independent fact finder's recommendation for a new contract that moves them one step closer to a strike. Paris, tell us, what did the fact finder report include and why did the Chicago Teachers Union reject the fact finder's findings. Well, and this is what happened before the last time the teachers walked off and the fact finder found in favor of the teachers union position. This time it finds in favor of CPS's position that essentially, if you boil it all down, that the offer that they're making, a 16% raise over five years is pretty fair. So the fact finder kind of sided with CPS over the teachers union. Teachers union uh, does not is rejecting this uh, contract offer. They're saying that, well, you know, it, it sh- shouldn't be a, a five-year contract. They want more nurses in schools. They want more librarians. Those are all laudable goals. But the other thing I think that they really don't like about this is the fact that it's five years. I think they want something that's three years so that they have the leverage to negotiate again when the mayor has to run for re-election. And the mayor's putting forth something that's five years, which safely ensures labor peace until after she ostensibly runs uh, for re-election, if that's indeed what she wants to do. So I think the union would love to get that number down to a three-year contract, 16% raise, not five years. And Heather, the the district could legally strike on or after September 25th. Uh, Tell us, uh, what are some of the sticking points uh, still in the negotiation that they'll have to overcome before then? Well, certainly the teachers want a raise and believe they are entitled to a raise. I think the sticking point is, is that the teachers union feels like they endured eight years of austerity under Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And they believe that it's time and they contend that Mayor Lightfoot ran on promises to sort of reverse that austerity and that the current proposal simply doesn't do enough. 
larger than the the pay raise issue is that issue that of staffing that Paris brought up. So we've seen really great reporting from uh, the Sun Times, especially about the lack of nurses in schools and how there just isn't any librarians, there aren't enough social workers. So it's those sort of paraprofessionals that I think the teachers union believes aren't getting enough, you know, aren't being brought in. And then there's the whole issue about the special education, which is still under state oversight. So while it might seem like, you know, it's just a question of how much is the pay raise going to be, I think the issues are much deeper and more systematic. That, And the question is, can the teachers union convince Mayor Lightfoot and Janice Jackson, the CPS CEO, to address those issues as part of this contract? Or are they simply going to have to take Mayor Lightfoot at her word that she intends to staff these positions up over the next several years? And they're, and they're also skeptical of the fact that she ran on supporting the notion of an elected school board, Correct. and yet she appointed uh, an entire school board. Now she's saying this is interim until Springfield passes an elected school board bill, although she helped kill a bill that was was in Springfield that would have created an elected school board. She just didn't like that particular bill from Rob Martwick, who was a nemesis of hers. So now the teachers union is skeptical uh, as to whether she really meant it when she said she wants an elected school board. So it's a lot more than money. And um, there's a lot uh, swirling around here when you talk about the fact that the Chicago Teachers Union heavily backed uh, Lightfoot's opponent. Let's remind people sure. in, in the mayoral election earlier no this year, they were, they were all in And there are for a great Tony deal Preckwinkle. of hurt feelings still right. on, on both sides. Uh, the Teachers Union feel like that Lightfoot sort of co-opted their issue, used that to get herself into office, and now is sort of turning her back on them. So despite all these sticking points, Mayor Lightfoot recently said there's There's no reason a deal can't be reached by the start of the school year. School bell rings Tuesday morning. That's four days away. Is that at all realistic? Uh, No. (laughs) No, no. But teach it, you know, for parents out there. This is what gets lost in these fights all the time is is how nervous this makes parents. And they want to know, you know, whether they have to uh, arrange daycare for their kids, whether their kids are going to go to school. For parents out there, teachers will be in school. On the start of school, you, you know, it, it, as we mentioned, if a strike happens, it's not going to happen for a while. And I really wonder what the public's appetite is for for another teacher strike. But um, no, there's not. They're not going to reach a deal uh, by Monday unless unless all of this is a bunch of posturing, or unless Mayor Lightfoot comes with some last minute proposal to hire a thousand new, you know, social workers and nurses and special education teachers. Right. Let's uh, switch gears then to the uh, mayor and police superintendent Eddie Johnson on Thursday. Uh, They launched a new plan to track gun offenders and curb violence. It's called the Gunstad Initiative. Heather, tell us about that. Well, this is the latest chapter in the ongoing saga of of whether or not Chicago is appropriately using the criminal justice system to hold people who carry guns and use guns in Chicago accountable. And we've seen back and forth between Lightfoot, Eddie Johnson, and then on the other side, Tony Preckwinkle and Chief Judge Tim Evans about whether people who have guns are being properly held before trial or if they're offering bail reform. So I think Mayor Lightfoot and Superintendent Johnson are hoping to mark data to prove that there's a disconnect between the people that the police are arresting and holding and then the people that the court system are letting go. So this 
data, I, I, I imagine they're hoping to sort of marshal their case in terms of, look, we're doing our job. And if the violence is continuing, one of the reasons is because we are not able to keep these people off the street. For all the people around the country that say Chicago has the toughest gun laws in the country and look how that's doing, you know, talk to police here, talk to state prosecutors. It's impossible for them to track, you know, the transfer of guns or they can't track down a lost or stolen gun. Um, the laws are designed to sort of make it as hard as possible to track those kinds of things. And, and police officers constantly are just removing illegal guns off the street because gun gets bought at a gun shop or comes in from Indiana or changes hands or there's gun runners or there's straw purchasers. They have almost no way of of tracking those things down and, and prosecuting those things. So they're doing what they can here to try and figure out who the repeat gun offenders are and, and, and make the point to the chief judge that that these people need to be held without bail amid this movement to empty the jail and not hold people for penny ante stuff, you know, while they're awaiting trial. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on The Morning Shift. I'm Dan Mihalopoulos in for Jen White. And with me in studio here, breaking down the big stories of the week, we have Paris Schutz of WTTW and Heather Sharon of The Daily Line. Some other stories we're watching this morning, uh, Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul is offering to settle many of the lawsuits stemming from deadly Legionnaires outbreaks at the Quincy Veteran Home. But some victims' families say they're offended by the low offers, which range from $100,000 to $500,000. And singer R. Kelly is asking the federal judge overseeing one of his multiple criminal trials to order his release from solitary confinement. Kelly is being held in the federal jail in downtown Chicago, pending trial on charges mostly involving his alleged sexual abuse of underage girls. Heather Paris, uh, let's uh, switch over to uh, state government. Uh, Governor J.B. Pritzker suffered a hairline fracture his left leg, we found out just uh, yesterday, he's under a doctor's order to rest and recover for the next four to six weeks. Uh, Heather, how did that happen to J.B. Pritzker? You know, I don't think that we know. And it doesn't seem like he knows. Yeah, it seemed like it was sort of a chronic condition and that it got worse and it got worse. And it looks like he finally broke down and went to the doctor and they said, uh, yeah, you've been walking around on a broken leg for several weeks, so maybe you should stop doing that. Uh, it, it's a, a really interesting uh, uh, state of play to have a governor with a, a broken leg just as we're sort of gearing up into this big push, as I mentioned before, for a graduated income tax. So it could could have repercussions. Yeah. I mean, and the governor was spending the last few weeks walking around state fairs and kind of doing doing a lot of walking and clearly he says that exacerbated the problem so of course uh, we we wish the governor a speedy recovery we we hope he's back on his feet and it's it's not too painful or anything i mean it, it doesn't seem like it's anything serious he said there's no surgery required nothing like that he just needs to stay off it and and massage it probably yeah, at the same time it's not a serious day it doesn't seem at all pleasant no. for the governor no. we do wish him well in his recovery from that injury uh, he made news this week when it was revealed that he had stepped in to stop a southern rock band called Confederate Railroad for performing at the state fair uh, downstate. Is this going to become an issue for the governor? We talk about this uh, almost schism between southern Illinois and us up here. Well, so the issue was is that this band Confederate Railroad has the Confederate flag in their stage show and merchandise. And I think the governor put out a very strong statement that said 
look, we don't endorse that imagery. It's racist imagery. It harkens back to a shameful period of um, Jim Crow and slavery. And, you know, he clearly made a political calculation that it was more important to take that stand and risk alienating people in southern Illinois. Uh, And uh, that, I think, uh, I think surprised a lot of people. Yeah. And Dan, does that ever uh, illustrate the divide in Illinois between I-80, you know, north of I-80, you know, yeah, governor, don't let them play. South of I-80, oh, government overreach. It's just a ban. Stop with this political correctness. I mean, that mirrors sort of the divide in the country between sort of rural, small town and big city and and, and suburban. And um, so they were going to play the state fair. They they got dropped from there. Then the DuCoin State Fair in southern Illinois. And they decided that they were still owed the money that they were contracted, and they decided to give that money away just sort of as a statement of of defiance. So, yeah, the culture wars come to Illinois. Right. The Mason-Dixon line is (laughs) apparently far north of where we think it is and closer to I-80. So uh, it was announced this week here in Chicago that the Pritzker administration is close to selling the Thompson Center. Uh, that sale would uh, supposedly help stabilize pension funds. Uh, What are the prospects for that, Heather? Well, it is a really complicated issue because uh, not only is the state of Illinois building beloved by preservationists, and I have to admit, I personally have a soft spot in my heart for the soaring atrium, even though it is... uh, Difficult to heat, impossible to cool, and is basically crumbling in Form over places. function. Yeah. Right. So the idea is, is that if the city changes the zoning for that piece of land, it could bring in somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million. Somebody would build a new office tower, perhaps condos. Who knows with the red hot downtown real estate market right now. However, you guys have all eaten. We've all eaten in the food court. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they have to buy out those leases. And they would also have to find new office space. Oh, and there's the giant state and or, or Clark and Lake transit station. So they would have to figure out how to keep that operating while the sale goes forward. There's a lot of folks that would love to see a water park, an indoor water park. <laughs> That's for you, Scott Thompson, Kennedy. In the Thompson Center. And boy, boy would that be fun. More indoor yeah, water parks in the Midwest. That's yeah. what we're, we're lacking yeah. here. The, we'll turn it into Wisconsin Dells in a loop. <laughs> so uh, before I let you guys go, uh, that's been it for the uh, Friday News Roundup. We'll be talking a little bit about the Thompson Center, by the way, uh, later in the program with some of the preservationists that Heather mentioned. But that's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks very much to our panel today, WTTW political correspondent and host Paris Schutz. I'll see you later tonight. Yeah, at, on at the Channel Weekend 11. Review, 7 p.m., shameless plug, <laughs> Channel 11. And Heather Sharon, managing editor and city hall reporter at The Daily Line. Thanks, everyone. Great job, Thank Dan. you, Dan. Yeah. And that's it for today's Morning Shift. A fresh show drops into your phone early Sunday morning, just in time for your Sunday coffee. You won't want to miss our extended conversation with Chicago-area native actor Nick Offerman. Until then, I'm Dan Mihalopoulos in for Jen White. For the entire Morning Shift team, thanks for listening and have a great weekend. This is the Morning Shift from WBEZ Chicago. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.